Welcome to episode two of the Calcedon podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, and I'm joined by Calcedon President Mark Rush Dooney and Calcedon Vice President Martin Salbretti. And we're going to discuss the thing that couldn't help but be a major topic for today, the fact that there's this new phrase of sheltering in place and what that means for the kingdom of God and what does it mean for nations and what does it mean for individuals. So Mark, why don't you kind of start us off with your perceptions of what's going on? On a lot of levels, we have a hard idea of, of seeing what the big picture is. And, and people have all sorts of ideas about conspiracies and such. But I think essentially what we have is a problem, what extent that, you know, how big of a problem it is, we don't exactly know. But we have a problem in that we don't trust the people who are making the decisions. And we have sometimes a, a right not to trust their decision making. So we have people in high places making decisions that affect people's lives in, in very big ways. And we have to, as Christians, take health issues seriously and infectious diseases seriously because it is a matter of, of not killing is to preserve the life of others. But on the other hand, people are rightfully very concerned about the prerogatives of government and they're suspicious of their motives. So we can approach this at any number of different levels. And I don't claim to have a lot of answers, but I think there's a little bit of truth in the seriousness of the disease. And yet there's also a little bit of truth in the fact that government is overreaching. So I think we have a problem and we don't trust anyone. And that's a big issue with our society. My father used to say that we're at the end of an age and there aren't many people we trust anymore. We used to trust doctors, highly regarded. Now they're sus suspect. We used to trust police officers. They were highly regarded. Now they're often held in contempt. One of the few professions that are held in high regard still are firefighters, but that may change. You don't know. So sin makes us point fingers and, ca and cast stones, and it turns our life into a, a, a very vicious thing. And that's often visible on social media too. And Christians are turning on one another as well. And I think that's probably even happening in some households. You know, we live in a culture where the family has, although it's a God-centered institution and it's the primary one, oftentimes families are going in many different directions. Now they all have to spend time together from morning till night. Um, some used to send their children off to school. And when it came to the summertime, they had camps and all sorts of activities they were going to do. Now they're confronted with they're here all the time. And so I can imagine, especially when you have um, families that have different political views within them, different generational views, maybe younger people embrace the whole idea of the Bernie Sanders kind of socialism and their parents are like, no, that's terrible. And so I think there can even be this distrust in families. Like, what's the last thing you read? Or I read this. No, I read that. Show me your sources. And so I think that we can start chewing on each other. And especially with losing the opportunity for fellowship in church settings, I think this reset this enforced Sabbath, if you will, 
needs to be viewed from the point of view of God's judgment. What do you think, Martin? Well, we're facing a disruption and there's a shaking going on. I know that Mark Rushton, you recently wrote up on that text from uh, Hebrews 12, that all things are going to be shaken, so only the unshakable things will remain. We see the medical industry being shaken by a lack of trust and and by the enormousness of the problem that it's facing, or it says, believes it's facing. And now we're seeing the economy being shaken simultaneously. So uh, we realize that uh, these things are showing the false foundation on which they're both built. If the economy were running on a biblical basis, it would not be reeling uh, the way it's doing now. As it's been commented in a biblical economy, at least in the agricultural world, you have a Sabbath for an entire year. You don't fret over not having any agricultural production for a year because God has blessed the nation with enough food to get across that sabbatical year to the next year. Of course, Israel failed to keep those Sabbaths, and God finally threw them out for 70 entire years in Babylon to enforce the Sabbath. And like you said, Andrew used the term a forced Sabbath. You also use the term sheltering in place. This reminds me of the biblical text, to your tents, O Israel. Now, at the time that was uh, commanded, it was because it was a a loss of confidence in the leadership of Israel, Uh, and it wasn't any good. Now it's for a different reason. We're being commanded to our tents and to hide out there. So uh, we have these two polarizations, and I think they indicate that uh, we've absolutized both these things. We've absolutized the authority of the medical industry. Uh, It's even been observed that it's an administrative reason that we're doing this, that we want the hospitals not to be flooded, so we want to but control the amount of people going to a hospital, flatten the curve as the word is used. So now administrators are determining what happens with the American economy. So this is not doctors necessarily claiming it. It's a problem with the hospital system uh, and it's awareness that it could be overwhelmed under certain circumstances. On the same token, then we have a, someone sent me, very uh, strong Christian reconstructionist had sent me uh, a list of about 60 links uh, detailing all of these conspiracy theories Uh, Some of them credible, some of them not, but they can't all be simultaneously true. You see the problem? Uh, And so these are all various rabbit holes. So when I look at this subject, I want to take a look at a text in uh, Isaiah 8. You can't do anything better than to get back to Scripture and see what is the pertinent parts that shed light on the darkness and the disruptions and the shakings we have. And here we see uh, God telling uh, uh, Isaiah what to do about the situation. Isaiah says, For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, which means strength of hand, literally, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a confederacy or a conspiracy, same word, the breathing together. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both houses of Israel and gin and his snare. So here we see that in order to buck the trend of going into down, sliding into conspiracy uh, that's uh, in favor of the medical industry or in favor of massive statism and global control uh, versus uh, the extreme of saying we run the economy and we ignore all these problems and it's going to go away, um, minimizing the problems and uh, saying the we absolutely have to have uh, self-ownership, as uh, hardcore libertarians say. They say there's no way that you can be commanded to do something good for somebody or something safe for somebody. The, the principle of non-aggression doesn't go that far. I believe they're mistaken. The Bible says a, a curse on both these approaches. 
God does actually have positive law in terms of uh, certain things that need to be done, say for the poor, uh, say in terms of the quarantine laws in uh, Leviticus 13 and 14. Rushton makes a point, quoting Wenham, that it's not just leprosy, and even that word, which is used for the Hebrew, uh, is not Hansen's disease, what we know as leprosy today. And there's over 30 different diseases that are being described there. But the sense is that we do, in fact, have a biblical doctrine of quarantine, but it's to quarantine the ill after the, they were tested. By the way, something else that's interesting here is that for a long time, we've lost track of the connection between uh, the priestly role of the doctor and medical industry, if you will. Industry is probably a good term. Now, all of a sudden, they are becoming priests, but not priests of light, but rather priests of darkness, it would seem, in the name of a humanistic fear. Uh, and so we don't want to be fearful. We know the consequences of fear. As Reshtuni and Autoscopo said, a people that is scared can be controlled. The Dominion man is leading. He's not reacting. And he's finding opportunities here to aid, to help, and to um, move the economy forward in ways that are not evident uh, if you're thinking inside the box. They think outside the box. Uh, and so we're seeing examples of this. One Christian reconstructionist I know in Alabama says he has a whole host of uh, businesses that he guides and uh, uh, counsels with. And he says, on a scale from one to 10, 10 being booming, and one being, being struggling and on, on the end, he says they're distributed all along. So some industries are doing very well and some are not. So they're shaking out in terms of the government. So the, so the government policies are changing the economy. There's external control in the economy that's being imposed. And so the free market is not providing the solutions, let alone a Christian free market, which is actually geared toward the kingdom of God and seeing it in the midst of these trials. So I think the perception here is that there's been some need of reckoning. And I think one of the most unusual things, as we've talked about before, is how widespread this is. I don't think there's any segment that's not affected. But think about the blessing. I, we have a friend, Mark and I have a mutual friend. He's an underwriter. And he once told me, I think it was 15 years ago, I want to live to see the day when the public schools are closed. And I called him and I said, you've lived to see the day when the public schools are closed. Think of all the idols in the lives of just Americans, whether it's sports or it's entertainment or it's farming out your children or think about the universities. It's going to be hard to justify brick and mortar schools after people have been studying online. So I think in a lot of ways we can say, because we can say it anyway, God knows what he's doing, but there's a lot of positive things that can happen. And one of the things that's unique about Chalcedon is we're actually positioned to help people on this. When they want answers, we don't have to say, gee, I, I wonder if anybody's ever talked about that before. Rush talked about it a lot from the economic system to the Sabbath system to all aspects of biblical law and education. So I do believe we're positioned to give answers, and I'm grateful to be associated with an organization that was forethinking enough to say, we know what's coming. Homeschooling connections fascinating to me. I just, on the way home from work today, I heard a financial advisor on the radio whose program just started and says, well, we're homeschooling again now, three weeks into homeschooling. He seemed to be enjoying it and uh, reconnecting with his three children. And so we, uh, we have this, as, uh, as, again, an opportunity where we're breaking, if you will, the stranglehold. And of course, to its uh, no, no surprise, 
the NEA and other uh, educational organizations are warning parents do not homeschool, of course, because you're undoing the indoctrination that's so been painstakingly right. imputed to them. Uh, so th they realize there's a problem. I, uh, I actually have a copy of the Newsweek from several years back, front cover, and in the top left corner, in the middle is Romney running for office, obviously. Uh, but in the top left, there's a blurb that's saying, are homeschooling parent parents mentally ill? So there's a time when you can actually get away with saying they're mentally ill to be homeschooling. Now and we're all mentally ill. <laughs> now, now, now guess who's not behind in their uh, curriculum? Homeschoolers are doing, they're just sliding through and they're moving toward their educational targets in the homeschooling system. I mean, the public school system is grinding to a standstill and trying to figure out how to use technology, which many homeschoolers have already uh, realized that they can pool their resources and make that work. So I thought it was very prescient for you, Andrea, to uh, put out uh, some of those early podcasts saying, given the situation, we have resources to help you out. Yeah. The Sam Blumenfeld's book on how to tutor, these other resources, uh, I can, I'll guide you, contact us, we will help you. Uh, and once they get over the hump, when they realize that they're not afraid, that it's not as bad as or, or terrible as they thought it was, because there's always this intimidating factor, which you have to overcome, and you do it with so many when you counsel them, Andrea. Once they get over that hump, all of a sudden they realize, why am I letting the state do this? The state can't right. be trusted. So uh, again, an opportunity. All crises involve opportunities. Some Christians want to use that opportunity again to delineate every single conspiracy theory about how this person way up here in Washington, D.C. took uh, bioweapons bio secrecy back to Wuhan. And this doesn't, it might, it might explain it, but does it tell us where to go from here? No, it doesn't. Right. You know, there these uh, it is a the depths of Satan is what it's called in Revelation, right? The deep things of Satan, but they they don't satisfy and they don't edify. And I think we need to stand for Paul's principle that all things are to be done unto edification. That's the priority. If we're not building people up and guiding them in the walk that they should have, and this is what Isaiah is getting at. And the reason that uh, God says that He had to put a strong strength of hand on His shoulder was because it's very tempting to go with one of these two crowds. And I see it on Facebook groups. They're either uh, all sold out for the quarantine and anyone who, who says, well, there's an economic problem with that. Well, of course, now they want to kill grandma. Uh, and the other token is if you don't realize that it's a sham and it's all big pharma trying to position itself for the play of the century to take control, global control of the world, then you're part of the problem there too. So both sides have a problem. And they're saying, shibboleth, are you saying it the right way? And uh, I think we're going to say, Kelsey, it's not going to say the shibboleth word. We're going to point and say, we need to fear God. And all these various fears of men are snares. And uh, uh, we don't discount them. Verse 20 would always say, your father, Mark, would always say, it's not that they don't exist. It's that Psalm 2 declares that they're irrelevant. And here in Isaiah 8, they're equal, declared equally irrelevant, but they are rabbit holes that everyone is going down. Everyone is going down this rabbit hole in Isaiah's era about Assyria. And saying, you're an Assyrian asset because of what you're saying. Just like people will say, you're an asset for uh, Big Pharma because you don't condemn them loudly enough. Or you're an asset for other uh, concerns. And this is not the case. The case is that Isaiah stood for God in the midst of people who demanded that he take one of their sides, and he wouldn't take the side. He took God's side. This happened in trials too. Mark and all of us here, you know, in the uh, at the Leaper trial here in Texas, where the, some of the women who were observing, they said, whose side is he on? Is he on their side or our side? <laughs> the woman answered, he says, he's on the Lord's side. He's not on the side, either the defense or the 
And that's where we need to find ourselves. If we can't answer that, that we're on the Lord's side on this and point to scripture that explains how that's the case, then I think we might be giving bad counsel. And uh, so I'm talking about a lot of brothers who I have the deepest respect for and they have zeal, but the zeal must be toward edification and building up. And some have programs for doing that and others uh, are working on it and others do not, but they sense there's something wrong. So if we can simply point people back to this passage and say, be aware when a conspiracy is being floated uh, at this side and the uh, volume is up this high on both ends, follow us, no follow us, this is the important thing. No, this is the important thing. In the Bible, nothing is absolutized except God himself. And so there's, like Mark said, there's some truth in each of these things, but the important truth lies where God telling us to go through. You know, the water's going to be piled up on both sides. We're supposed to go through the Red Sea, as it were, and wisely and expeditiously. And I think looking to the scriptures and realizing that a lot of the fear that's being inculcated, we need to apply the Bible to these concerns because God lifts us out of fear if we would but take hold of the scriptures that guide us in that direction. But some of that means letting God put a strong hand on us and not being swayed by every wind of medical doctrine, economic doctrine, because we're being hit by all sides. And everyone's an expert. I have to say in three minutes, everyone's an expert on the internet. We don't pretend to expertise. We would say that God is the expert and we better be consulting his word to tell us how to navigate this problem the best way. You know, you brought up the thing of experts, and recently there was a clip of Dr. Rush Judy answering a question at the end of one of his talks, and he called experts those who seek power without a purpose. And the power that we have as believers in Jesus Christ, and then those who were looking to reconstruct according to biblical doctrine and biblical practices, is that we know what our purpose is that it's the kingdom of God in his righteousness. So there are some people who will outline all the offenses, you know, the number of abortions, the prison system, um, sexual trafficking. These are all things that the Lord God is not happy with because his law says so. So rather than trying to blame it on the Democrats or the Republicans, I think it's time, don't you think, Mark, that we need to look into our own house and say, do we have our pet idols? Do we have those things that we've been sort of wasting our time with when there's real work to be done? Yes. One of the reasons my my father became very impatient with conspiracy thinking is because he felt it sometimes bordered on being satanic and claiming that the evil had great power and that these evil powers were really controlling history and controlling the wor world. So he, he became increasingly impatient when people began with conspiracy talk, because he said the problem with conspiracy talks is it simplifies the problem. It identifies evil in a particular uh, individual or group of individuals. And the the gist of many conspiracy theories was that if we just inform enough people, we'll have, in effect, salvation by education, and that something will happen and things will change if just enough people understand who's behind this uh, conspiracy. And it's really a finger-pointing rather than what's wrong with us, what's wrong with our culture, what is it that we can change? Regarding the, the, the problems of medicine, and Martin mentioned the, the lack of hospital beds is a root of some of this problem that, that leads to a certain 
conclusion by others on what we have to do. Well, why is hospitalization, why have medical costs gone up so much? Hospitalization and medicine was not expensive and prohibitively expensive till the government got involved in providing medical care with Medicare. Before Medicare, hospital care was affordable. It didn't bankrupt you to be in the hospital for two or three days, and now it can. Once government was paying many of the bills, then uh, medicine became big business, which means it became systemic throughout the medical field. Tuition to medical schools therefore went up because there was a lot more money to be made if you became a medical doctor. Across the board, things became more expensive because there was government money in it and government funding. And so uh, even Ron Paul has talked about this, but others have, have spoken to the same extent. And it's saying if you ever can find your, an old hospital bill from the 50s or something, it's, it's remarkable how reasonable medical care was at one time. So we take these things, we create problems with them, and then they, they don't just have secondary and tertiary effects but they become systemic and they last for generations and we create these difficult systems. And then all of a sudden we have a major problem that we don't have enough hospital bills. Therefore we have to change everybody's behavior because we don't have enough hospital beds. Okay, well, well maybe we need to address that, what's causing that. If you know enough about any area, you could probably trace many of our problems back and go years and years and years. Let's take the sheltering in place and how it's affecting people. If we were all living debt-free, and if we had been living debt-free and we had accumulated capital, this would be a refreshing break. Assuming it was all 100% necessary, and this was a, and assuming this is a serious uh, illness, and we need to isolate ourselves, as has happened many times in history. But because we're not in a position where we can go without immediate income, we're in trouble. And of course, the a lot of the elderly are dependent upon insufficient income from their social security. So we create these problems, and then when there's a hole in the dike, we're not ready to address them because of things that we've done over many, many years that puts us in a position. And so we need to rethink a lot of where we are. I think this, this crisis is going to pass. There will be toilet paper in the stores one day. And therefore, we need to think about, well, how can we position our, ourselves so that the next crisis doesn't blindside us? And uh, this is something... It's good to avoid these issues. It, it appeared to be imminent in 2008 with the recession. And later, a number of economists said, you know, the banks were only within a matter of a few days of major defaults, which would have created a chain reaction of losses by banks around the world. And after that, uh, remember Portugal and Greece were facing possible bankruptcy. There were about five countries. They had an acronym for them. And uh, people thought, well, that was going to precipitate another banking crisis that would send us into free fall. Well, why is it that our economy is vulnerable? And this is going to hurt our economy tremendously. It could send us into a recession, possibly depression. But even if it doesn't, why is it hitting us so hard? It's because we haven't lived biblical lifestyles. We've been living on the thin edge 
of prosperity. And where has our prosperity been coming from? It's been coming from the Federal Reserve and the creation of dollars. That's what's been keeping our economy going since before any of us were born. Right. And so we've had time to prepare our lives and restructure. And this is a warning, I think, because this is going to pass. But this is a warning. We need to do things differently as individuals and as families. And I think that this is good in a lot of ways. Good's going to come of that. People are going to be ready, a little bit more ready for the next crisis that hits. And ultimately, it's always going to affect us financially because the world economies are a house of cards. And you don't have to be a conservative Christian or a hard money advocate to admit that. Many economists around the world have been saying that for a very long time. So here I think is a challenge, and <clears throat> I'd like your opinion on this as well. How many people today, people who we would consider our allies in worldview, are more concerned with losing their 401k or their retirement than they are on seizing the opportunity to actually further the kingdom of God with the knowledge they have and the, what they've learned over the years? I mean, if we're not prepared to lose everything, because ultimately that's not going to last, once we die, that stuff won't be here. I dare say people have had a wrong perspective. I think they thought God could never have anything bad happen to me because I'm a Christian. Well, history is full of things, bad things that happen to Christians. So I, I think it's this shift is a shift in looking at our service to God as opposed to our comfort in God. What do you think, Martin? I see you looking things up, so you're probably... <laughs> well, there was certainly a, uh, several scriptures that deal with a false trust in riches because they can't have a trust or a faith in riches or in wealth, same thing really, uh, or your intelligence or in strength, and all these things don't bode well. So, uh, and all these are examples of false gods that we elevate. Uh, it's even tempting for Christians to sometimes fall into this, simply because we don't get the big picture. We're looking down here and seeing, look at this situation here, and versus looking upward. Uh, when you lift up your eyes, which is commanded a lot in Scripture, and don't look for what's under the sun, as Ecclesiastes puts it, but to consider how God is framing it, then we see a very different thing. I saw a beautiful meme uh, on Facebook, and maybe you've seen it too, it says, uh, what post millennials do during a pandemic, something like that. And it was a picture of a father and a son planting a small sapling tree. And I think this is the essence. Even in the crises that Jeremiah faced, he planted a tree, which means he's putting a stake into the future. And we have to be future-oriented uh, for us to even consider that. Uh, and therefore, those who seize that opportunity, this is the time to plant the trees that will flourish at the time of tumult and, and dislocation and uncertainty um, versus being a victim of it. You can either be a leader in it or you can be you know, swept away with the flow. Uh, and that's why it takes strength of hand to God to say, first off, the fear has to stop. It, stop listening to what they're saying and focus on what God's requiring of you in the midst of this. Uh, by the way, when Mark was talking about what his father called the doctrine of selective depravity, that this group is responsible for our evils of befalling us. Everything would be great if not for this group doing that, or these people trying to implement this control, et cetera. Uh, another thought occurred to me, and this appears in uh, R.J. Rushdie's book, Health and Wellness, where we ag aggregated all the medical reports. Now, if you want to know a little bit about what how we got to where we're going, those 12 or 13 chapters in that book 
tell us a lot. And one of the ones that I think is most significant is the doctrine of liability. You see, in under biblical law, you have a doctrine of full liability. A doctor is fully liable for what he does. Uh, and every one of us is fully liable. We all are to take into account uh, and can be uh, uh, pulled up uh, before the magistrate for things that you know we've uh, shorted somebody on. Scant measures and things like this, as uh, Micah 6 calls it. Well, what has happened in the meantime is we created this thing called the uh, Limited Liability Corporation, where we separate liability, personal liability, from the people who run the corporation. So now, instead of the biblical requirement that there's liability and uh, responsibility, the Limited Liability Corporation does not have these kind of things. We actually have a corporate veil that protects people from the consequences of their actions. And this incentivizes irresponsible conduct. But on the flip side, as R.J. Rashtoni points out, we've gone the opposite direction with the medical profession. Instead of full liability, we demand infinite liability and perfection from a doctor. And this shoots the costs of medical torts and uh, malpractice through the roof. And it means that the doctor, if he's not perfect, uh, has failed at everything. He could uh, do 120 heart surgeries in a row, but if the 121 is a failure, uh, he's, he's ruined, he will never do another operation. So instead of having full liability, we have infinite liability. And when you have infinite liability, you know what you have? You have a God, because God, is infinitely responsible for everything here too, in the sense that he's the owner and creator of it, but he also controls it and he's going to overrule everything for his good, Uh, but we can't. But by investing a doctor with infinite liability, saying he's got infinite responsibility, we've basically given him godlike status. And therefore it's no wonder that now we are kowtowing to the new gods. They need to be human beings and they need to, to restored to their priestly function. In other words, they weren't just doctors. They actually had a priestly function under biblical law. So under the biblical position, they are higher than where humanism originally put them and lower than humanism has placed them using infinite liability. There's a balance in biblical doctrine. And when things get out of balance, we either have the corporations doing what they want and we have doctors being held infinitely accountable, which means that they're treated like a god. And when a god fails, you abandon him you would depose the God and find another God to worship, another doctor to go to. So this godlike aspect of the medical profession has been blown up by humanistic law and is far exceeds the notion that they have a priestly function. In fact, medical uh, examinations in Leviticus 13 and 14, they were Levitical functions uh, and they were very straightforward and they were to protect the community. Now we've invested much more to a doctor and said he must cure uh, and, and we have to have 100% certainty of cure. Uh, and then we have all sorts of lawyers lined up to say, if you sign a contract saying it might not work, we can overthrow the contract. But they call it a quantum merit lawsuit to say, yeah, maybe you were forced to sign that thing. We have a crisis in judicial law, in tort law, and it all arises because we've just taken the biblical doctrine and thrown it to the winds. And where the Bible said, here's full liability, we split it in two and had the uh, no liability corporation and infinite liability doctors and wonder why everything is torn apart. We've accepted this scenario and we've made this bed and now we're sleeping in it and we don't like it. But it means we have to rethink all these things from the ground up. If you only think we can manipulate a couple of things and we're fixed, you're mistaken. Everything must be rebuilt from the root up, from the foundations up. That's why we always quote Isaiah 58, 12. 
they that shall be of thee shall build the old wasted places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. So that's the task. And what we're seeing is when there's a push on this building, the fact that the foundations are weak or crumbling, very manifest. And one of those is an economic foundation of the family where the family should have plenty of reserves and be debt free. And instead, we're crying out to God. And, and yet the consequences are what we, what we have. Of course, there are other causes, massive inflations, taxation, uh, having the state do things that Christians ought to be doing. But this is the price to pay when God's law is slacked. Then humanistic law, which is very imperfect, comes in to play God. And uh, you get a very, very poor God when humanism has the hegemony as it currently does. But it will not last. Again, God will shake it and continue shaking it until only the unshakable kingdom remains through this process, whether it's months, years, or, or decades, or more, doesn't matter. The result is that everything that is founded on humanism is doomed. It is building on sand, and therefore, when the winds blow like they do now, it, we're showing them toppling. So, Mark, I remember when I first read in your father's books about the fall of humanism, humanism is crumbling, and, and my thought was, well, I don't see it crumbling. I don't know what he's talking about. Maybe, you know, I don't know, would I even be comfortable if humanism crumbled? After all, how much of my life is tied up into that? So now people are seeing cracks in the armor, I think, as Martin said. Not only do we have administrative decisions being made for the economy, but they've been made for medical things for a long time. It was the insurance company that said how long you'd be in the hospital or what the doctor could do. It was the civil government that said if you said something to your doctor, he had to report to you, what do you think the opportunity now is for the, for the people who are listening and says, okay, we're not where we want to be, and clearly we're not what the Bible says we should be, so how do we get there from here? Well, uh, Martin referred to the, the Hebrews passage that, that speaks of God's work in history as a shaking, so things which can't be shaken will remain. If we view it like that, we can understand that we have to present it in those terms, that this is not the final shaking, it's not the end, the sign of Jesus's return or, or anything of the kind, because part of our problem is bad theology in the church. It's an eschatology that says, if there's a problem, it all has to be resolved in my lifetime. This is a process that goes on in history. We don't realize the extent to which there have been movement. We're ignorant of history to a large extent. There have been major movements important movements and ideas that have come and have gone. A lot of things come and go throughout the course of history, and they will continue to do so. There's this constant shaking out. It doesn't mean that things suddenly, every time there's a shaking, we fix that, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. We're slow learners. And so sometimes when one thing is shaken out, we replace it with something else that is going to need to be shaken out down the road. And yet, I think this is an interesting example. We kind of thought that this would, might be true of 9-11, but we returned to very conventional means of let's go to war to fix this. We now see people very shaken because everything has stopped. And suddenly they realize that our government literally has the ability to not only shut everything down, but then promise don't worry, stay at home, we'll send you a check in the mail. And they've never seen this kind of a shakeup. And certainly I, don't, I can't think of one like this in peacetime in American history. 
at all. But they, they've seen the possibility that, you know, there's a breaking point for all these things. Well, if this happens, the schools close. If this happens, the grocery store shelves suddenly go empty. They don't realize the fragility of modern life and our modern economy. And they probably certainly don't even understand why our modern economy is even fragile. The state of our economy is a whole different a subject. But at least they're seeing that this crisis, however serious you think it really is, is revealing the fragility of life. That came upon people also in the, the Spanish pandemic. It came across people in wartime in, in many, many cases. Uh, we forget that there have been periods in history where whole nations have ceased to exist because they were invaded, overcome, and the nation itself ceased to exist. Nationalities have ceased to exist throughout the course of history. There are upheavals throughout history. We have to look at these through our faith. What do we know that Scripture tells us? And if you have a very short-sighted view of eschatology, that it means Jesus is coming back soon, or we're going to be taken out of this world, and God, Jesus is going to come and do something with someone else, but it's all going to be basically miraculous, then there's no reason for us to do anything. And my father often talked about how our eschatology affects how we think and how we act. And I think the weakness of a lot of uh, Christianity is going to be made apparent. I was just thinking the other day about how uh, these uh, mega churches don't seem so appealing. And I was telling my wife at breakfast this morning, I have a feeling that a lot of germaphobes are going to be created. More germaphobes are going to be created than this, than there's actually viruses now circulating, I think, because a lot of people are going to become permanent germaphobes. True, um, that's true. After this. But if we look at the big picture, what is happening in history? And that's the advance of the kingdom of God. And the shaking is a necessary aspect of that. We get comfortable in our lives, and we don't grow out of it. I don't know, for some reason in recent weeks, I've gotten a lot of things on, on, on Facebook linking to old music. Maybe it's people just bored and they're saying, listen to this old song from you know 1965 or something. And I like some of that music. I have a theory that we always like the music we liked when we were teenagers. But listening to some of the words of those songs, we bought into that. It was a catchy tune, but the words were awful. That's so true. <laughs> And, but we accepted the words because we liked that style of music. And so we put up with it. Well, it's that way in our lives in a lot of ways. And a lot of this stuff needs to be shaken out of our society. It needs to be shaken out of our culture, our civilization, and our lives. And that maybe looked like a messy process. So when my father started Chalcedon, Within a few weeks of when he actually started Chalcedon, he coined this term reconstruction. In other words, just start building. It's not going to be a black and white, one thing goes away, something more per you know, perfect is going to replace it. We start building. A lot of the institutions of humanism have been built up over a period of time. As they fail, something has to take its place. In some instances, like homeschooling, we, I think Christians have done a decent job of coming up with an alternative to the humanistic system. 
and others it's more difficult. And some things were actually precluded by the state from taking part in, for instance, starting orphanages is in, in the United States is virtually impossible. And there were once orphanages, but they've disappeared because of uh, laws. But we do what we can. And this is re revealing a lot of failures, the failures not only of the humanistic system, but sometimes, as I was saying, the our own failures in our own personal lives, our finances, uh, not, you know, particularly, but in other areas as well. So there's a lot that we have to do. And it's not going to be an easy process. It's going to sometimes be messy. But when my father talked about being at the end of the age of humanism, he was saying these things are failing. In the 50s, he was talking about the problems of modern education. People thought he was a, just a nut job for saying, for, for talking against the public school in any way, because public schools were an American institution, and it was pretty much considered unpatriotic to speak against the public school system. We're slow learners. And my father was something of a, a visionary in that he could see the course of what humanism was doing and that Christians had to begin a new process. We're slowly catching up to where he was a generation ago, but he didn't have a lot of expertise in many areas and we're going to have to slowly rebuild those. Some things are going to come crashing down. And, and when I, I keep referring to the economy because our economy is a house of cards and we all are invested in our economy, whether we want to be or not, that's going to impact us all when that crash comes. I don't think this is the crash right now, but eventually we're going to have to reckon with our debt and the fact that our money is really not worth anything. How that's going to look, I don't pretend to know, but it's going to get more serious. This is just this is just a precursor to some of the issues they're going to face Christians ahead. And I think it's good that the mega churches aren't meeting right now. I think it's good that people have to stop and think about their eschatology and where do we go from here? And can we just wait, say we'll wait for Jesus and hope the end is soon? Because that's not going to do anything. It hasn't done anything in the last generation. In fact, a lot of churches that, that dealt very heavily, we, we haven't convinced a lot of them against their eschatology, but a lot of churches have stopped talking about their eschatology as much. They haven't renounced it, but they've stopped talking about it to the same extent because they've been wrong so many times and they know it. So one of the things I think is interesting is people think that now everybody's homeschooling and they're really not homeschooling. What they, what they have is their children at home and they don't really know what to do. You know, do they sit them at a desk? Do they say, don't talk to me from nine in the morning till three? So really this is a return to the family as the basic institution. And I think that's where Calcedon is really positioned. I'm very close to having the Law and Liberty course up on my teaching site where people will be able to sit down in groups read your father's short chapters, and then really discuss the changes they can make in their life. It was law and liberty that got my husband and me to say, we're thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. We shouldn't be thanking God for all this. We should be thanking MasterCard because that's who's giving us all this ability to go in debt. And after reading that in law and liberty, we got out of debt. And it was something that it was a conviction and a commitment. So I think we have the tools. I think that short little volume 
would do an awful lot to get people started on what can I do? What changes do I need to make? Because the family's discussed in that book, debt is discussed in that book, all sorts of things that people need to use this reset to help them get on the right track. And I know, Martin, you and I did a series of podcasts earlier. We didn't finish the entire book, but we went through it really discussing the implications of those chapters and what they meant for people. And I'm glad to hear that you're pointing out that the family, as R.J. Rashtoni would say, is the basic unit of society. All of a sudden, we're realizing how weak some of these families are that are the basic unit of society, because we've always thought that the dollar bill was the basic unit in the state, in the medical profession, and all these other institutions. And now we come back, everything folded into the family, and uh, the weaknesses there come up. And uh, about the germophobic revolution, I wonder who would have thought that Howard Hughes would be ahead of his time with his hygiene patterns. <laughs> so... I'd like to uh, appeal to another scripture I think, again, is a good one for our time. Anytime that you have uh, the state authorities or the church authorities telling you everything's going to be fine, everything's going to be right, we have it all under control, it's reminding me of a passage in the 13th chapter of Ezekiel, starting around the 10th verse, where they say there's peace, peace, but there is no peace. And it continues, and one built up a wall, and lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. Some would read that, and some whitewashed it. So they built the wall, looked kind of raw, and then they whitewashed it to make it look like it was a really good wall and say, look how great we're going to build this thing up. Don't fear, peace, peace. Check out the wall. The wall's in good shape. But God continues, verse 11, Say unto them which daub it with untempered mortar, that it shall, be, it shall fall. There shall be an overflowing shower. Great hailstones shall fall in a stormy wind. And then you'll be essentially... Removing the question will be, where is the doubting we're with you of doubt? In other words, where are all those arguments that uh, you gave that said this is going to happen this way and we're going to sail clean through it? God's going to take every one of these arguments and protestations and assurances and confident claims that are being issued left and right from the mass media, and all of them are going to be leveled in the dust because God's going to take the whitewashed wall and prove that it's nothing but whitewash and weak and not and it's built on sand. This is what's going to happen to it. So God says, I'm going to discover it down to the foundations. I'm going to knock it down to the foundations. And that's where we're talking about the shaking. Shaking that uh, Mark appealed to from Hebrews 12. Uh, it's an interesting passage because it says this in the original uh, Greek of that passage, which appeals to the, the Hebrew and original in, uh, in Haggai 2, 6 and 7. Uh, it says, the things that are uh, shaken are shaken so that which is the word hina, so that the unshakable things will remain. So then it's necessary for all these shakable things to be leveled in ruins in order for the unshakable kingdom to stand out in the midst of them and rise up because all these other things are impediments and obstacles to it because they are all false gods and false approaches. So when we come back around to it, we say, okay, here's a crisis that touched medicine, touched statism, touched economy, it's touching everything, touching families. I think this is important because then we say here at Chalcedon, but the law of God touches all these things too. And so we go in with only half of our gun loaded if we're using only the New Testament or only red letter Christianity. We need to appeal to the whole counsel of God. Here's a place where Matthew 4, 4 tells us, man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the failure to live by every word is what we're facing right now. It says, oh, no man, anything. Well, we're in deep in debt, and so now we scream when the spigot is turned off. 
where his spigot was turned off regularly, was supposed to be, uh, with God's blessings for a whole year we, out of every seven. And on this Jubilee year, he had two consecutive years of having a nice quiet time, if you will, a, a pleasant rest, if you will. But we are not prepared for these things. We uh, have thrown maturity under the bus. And therefore, we talk about the perpetual kindergarten. Uh, I use this uh, notion because we keep going back to the basics and we never mature into the fullness of God. Therefore, we can't tell what Romans 3.31 says. Yea, we establish the law. Where? I don't see any Christians establishing the law, hardly any. They're in a small pocket of people who are committed to the word of God. But the vast majority of Christians have been following blind guides and we know they're all going to the ditch. And the ditch is very obvious today. If you want to not end up in the ditch, you need to appeal back to God's law. And that's why Chalcedon has spent a large amount of its resources expounding it so that people can learn how to apply it, or at least be inspired to figure out how to apply it. Because sometimes we don't know. We're so far removed from the strong discipline of the past, as Warfield says, we've lost the skills to apply it. But they can be had if we're hungry for the word of God and we're not interested in whitewashed walls anymore. We want walls that have a sure foundation, the walls of and bulwarks of salvation. And, and uh, that's where we stand in justice. You know, you bring up the subject of the Sabbath and that there'd be enough for the seventh year and then that first year of planting. Well, that wasn't magic. That was people living in a providential way to say, look, we can't eat up all our stuff. We have to have some things because God requires us to give the land a rest and give ourselves a rest from cults. But today, Sabbath as to, you know, can you go to a ball game on the Sabbath or can you go to the grocery store? They don't appreciate that the Sabbath rest in Christ is, is the true gift that we've been given. And all this other pattern is to help us remember that. And there's more to it than that even. Why did Israel not observe these Sabbaths? Because they did not trust God. They trusted man. So we trust that if we plant and plow and harvest, we'll have food. We don't trust God to say, don't do it. So we're not willing to rest. So we're going to show, exemplify and institutionalize our distrust of God and substitute trust for man. And here's where Jeremiah comes in. 17.5, right? The famous verse, cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his arm. And uh, we're facing that now. This is a curse that we're facing. This disruption, this massive dislocation is due to people trusting in their fellow man in the state, in medicines and doctors versus God. Not only is it a snare, it's a curse and God's going to tear it all apart. Uh, because we make fresh flesh our arm. In other words, we trust our fellow human more than we trust God. That's why the Sabbath was ignored. We don't trust God. We trust man. And therefore, God's curse follows inexorably. And so to guide people out, we have to point people to God's law and say, this is the way walking in it. Trust and obey. There's no other way, as R.J. Rishtoni kept saying. It was a very simple song that he quoted, but it, ex it capsul encapsulated everything that the faith is about. And that's why a child can be commanded in terms of the kingdom. But we are not as wise as children are who would trust and obey God. You know, we're too sophisticated for that. And now we're paying a heavy price for our alleged wisdom because it's a wisdom erected against the knowledge of God. I think why a lot of things deteriorate on Facebook is because you can't touch each other on Facebook. People have gotten away from the people that are right in front of them. Their, their children, their, their parents, 
you know, they farmed their parents away to retirement homes. Now you can't go to the retirement homes to see your parents. You know, children have been discarded as, you know, a nuisance and will only have two. Well, you'll have more help if you have more than two. So I think this reshaking is an opportunity for us when people come for answers, not be afraid to give them the tough words, but in a loving, kind way to say, this is what God says, and this is for your benefit, not, oh, gee, look what I have to do. A final verse I think I'd like to inject here. So Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, We're back to the Hebrews uh, which comes in handy because, again, it brings the Old Testament into New Testament relevance uh, uh, explicitly. You don't have to guess about it, even though uh, we should have trusted that we are to live by every word. But here the passage talks about Jesus destroying the works of the devil and just, uh, conquering death, he says. Uh, and I think it's worth reciting that passage exactly the way it reads because there's deliverance and liberty here. And I think we miss this so many times. If we but would just take faith in what God is saying here. It's stupendous. He says, Through death, Jesus might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. See, people who fear death are subject to bondage all their entire life until the day moment they die. They're subject to the bondage of the fear of what's coming. And this is what Christ delivers us from, the fear of death. And if you are not delivered from the fear of death through Christ, and uh, you're not going to walk according to the law of God. You're going to be fearful, and you're going to be in bondage because you're not going to be walking in liberty with God's law. Mm-hmm. And so what Christ has done is to deliver us from the fear of death and from the bondage that fear of death brings. Now, what is actually being played out on all the news media? The fear of death, their death counts are coming. Easter Sunday is going to have the highest death count. You know, the Grim Reaper is coming at America, and, we, and what are we going to do? You better put every, all the eggs in the basket with the medicine, doctors and the statists as they were. So fear of death is a source of bondage, but it starts with the individual soul being enslaved, you see. And Christ has already delivered us from us. But if we don't embrace the entirety of the Word of God, then that deliverance doesn't mean much to us because we still live in that fear, and therefore we are under bondage. And when I look out on the landscape of Christian discussion on it, I see a lot of bondage, fear of death. Now, a lot of, some of it's not that, some of it's love for the neighbor. But a lot of it is also couched, especially when the status get a hold of it. Uh, it's ironic, as we all have noted, that uh, abortion services are considered an essential service, and we must keep those going at all costs, even though we're going to start pulling people off of ventilators on Sunday. So uh, it's a culture of death, and all those that hate me love death. Uh, our Jewish student would always quote from that passage. I believe it's Proverbs 8.36. Uh, and that's what we're facing here. We have this love-hate relationship with death, right? It, it's in bondage to us, but we love it because we live in darkness and we hate the light because our deeds are evil. So Christians who are regenerate should be able to abandon the fear of death. They should be leading people away from the fear of death. They should be talking to the neighbor saying, there's a way to get out of the bondage from fear of death. Because this is a central part of this passage about what Christ is doing. And we can see a very post-millennial passage coming up in the eighth verse, just a few more. Don't see all things yet in subjection to Christ, but it's coming, right? So but we do see Christ seated at the right hand of all power, etc. So when we lead up to that passage about all things will be in submission to him, we start off with the fact that we get there when the fear of death no longer holds sway over us, no longer has power over us. And therefore, there's something empowering about what Christ has done that liberates us. And therefore, we find liberation through Christ 
And then in our walk, we find liberty because as David said, I walk at liberty because I seek thy precepts. How, now how do I walk now that I've been delivered from the fear of death and its bondage? Mark, I have a question that may not be as easy to answer quickly, but a lot of the questions I get from people are, so should we disobey the civil instructions that say we shouldn't meet in churches? Should we just decide we're not going to do this anymore? And to me, it sort of reflects an idea of do you have any idea who you're fighting or where you're fighting or what your objective is? So your dad always said, this isn't about revolution. It's about regeneration. Could you frame a perspective for the people who want to know, should we go along with what they're saying or should we not go along with what they're saying? I haven't uh, fully come down on one side or the other on, on that issue. Maybe Martin has a stronger position. I find it offensive the way in which instructions have been given to the churches as though it's mandatory. Some jurisdictions have been better than others about urging churches to do this or that. I don't think they should dictate. However, from the other perspective, assuming there is a legitimate threat of infection, churches have been faced with this problem before. They were certainly faced with it in the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and 19, and you can find articles about the church's reaction to that. Same arguments were used that the state had no right to tell the churches, that the churches were a different jurisdiction and they could not impose this. This was an imposition on religious liberty. And yet, I believe most of the churches came around and said, this is actually an act of mercy. We have to preserve life. And in fact, there have been a number of cases reported in the media including one here in Sacramento, a church that, um, in which at least 71 people to date were infected with the virus. That was in mid-March. They stopped meeting shortly thereafter. I think that was actually before uh, the governor's order. But there have been other churches as well that have infected people. And are we standing on a right because it's an abstract right and we're afraid not to stand on it because we think this is a design of the enemy? Or are we acting in terms of a Christian compassion and says, we don't want to infect other people? There is a legitimate reason not to meet. And there's a legitimate reason to object to being told not to meet. So we have to use Christian wisdom in this. And I put that at people's individual consciences on, on how they come down on that. But a good boost to that thought here. Uh, in the article you just wrote for the coming Horizon Bill, you used the term extraterritoriality. That the church is an extraterritorial situation. It's like an embassy in the midst, an enclave. And uh, your father in the book, Christianity State, actually has a whole chapter on extraterritoriality, indicative that it's a separate jurisdiction. So we need to assert that, but here's the, here's the rub. The laws on quarantine in Leviticus 13 cut through the state and the church's jurisdiction. It covers both. So God's law is very broad, exceeding broad, and covers them both. So you can make the claim of extraterritoriality, and it's true, completely true, but it doesn't absolve you from any requirements that might be imposed in Leviticus 13. And here, if the church wants to say we're a Levitical function, how can you be a Levitical function when you throw out one of the primary functions, which is health? It's education, health, and welfare, uh, plus the, uh, and if we throw out the health part, 
then it's not the whole church. It's not the whole counsel of God anymore. It's not living and walking by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So yes, we don't assert that the state is over the church. We assert rather extraterritoriality, that it's an embassy. That's why it was essentially such an outrage that Paul said, I am an ambassador in chains. And that was an insult to the kingdom that Paul represented, the kingdom of the Most High. And yet the laws, the quarantine don't care whether it's extraterritorial or not, because they apply to every single man. By the way, one of the most powerful things, if you were to read Rashtuni's commentary on Leviticus on the 13th chapter and the 14th chapter, when you restore someone after they've had an illness, is that the procedure for putting them back in play in society, listen to this, is that there's a sacrifice and the blood is placed in the three exact same places, you know, like the right finger, the great toe, right toe, exact same places that consecrate a priest. In other words, the priesthood of all believers sits in the passage in Leviticus 14, which brings us out of a uh, quarantine situation. So why aren't we studying this? It's exciting stuff. One of the foundations of the Reformation is found in a quarantine law and the aftermath of it. So yes, extraterritoriality, the state does not have this jurisdiction over the church, but the church is subject to the jurisdiction of Christ on quarantine, and therefore the state is saying it. We have to say, well, we may not be observing it because the state says so, but we are observing it because God says so, and so happens that there God and the state might be, in some areas, saying things in harmony. Now, sometimes the state may say more, because the biblical quarantine involves not quarantining people who are not infected, but those who are. That's why this what's happening in Sweden is of keen interest to many people. They seem to be focusing on people who are tested and, uh, positive and only quarantining them versus shutting down their entire economy. So if they can, in fact, make a successful role of it in the moment, their rates are about in the middle without killing their economy. It means that perhaps following a more biblical model of Leviticus 13, which means you quarantine the sick, not the healthy, we've actually had an overreach here a solution that is not biblical, it exceeds the biblical solution. So it's uh, the Goldilocks solution, again, is probably the biblical one. It's too hot, too cold, but in the middle, same deal here. So I understand where Mark is coming from when he says we don't want to cede jurisdiction to the state. The church is not a creation of the state. On the other hand, the church is a creation of God, and God can speak to the church, and God says things about quarantine that too many Christians say, it doesn't apply here, this isn't leprosy, and they're missing the boat. They're missing the understanding that the general equity of this passage is to be applied. And while we're at it, maybe you should pay attention to the fact that the priesthood of all, of all believers is taught in this passage explicitly. I think the bottom line here is what you don't know biblically can hurt you. And if you want to know what you should be doing, rather than going off on some sort of impulse, that you say, what does God's word say in this situation? And everybody's got a lot of time now, so maybe they can get off social media and they can turn off their television and they can read. I mean, all the people who've told me over the years, if I only had time to read, well, you do now. So let's see if you do it. All right. Well, thank you guys. And uh, I hope this conversation has been helpful to people. It's been helpful to me. And until next time.